My name is Sanjeev Gupta and this is Socialism in the Time of Corona. In this podcast, I'm talking with people with deep experience in socialist and left politics, especially in the US. Our overarching question is, during this pandemic, how might we not only defend whatever gains we've made to this point, but actually advance them? Should socialists in the US be involved in electoral politics? And towards what ends and in what ways? These are, of course, perennial questions for socialists and not only in the US. This episode looks at left and socialist involvement in the electoral politics of Rhode Island, a small state in the northeastern US with a population of just over 1 million. My guest is Mia Inoue, PhD candidate at Yale University in political theory and co-founder and membership coordinator of Reclaim Rhode Island, a relatively new organization that states, quote, Rhode Island has never belonged to the people, but if we work together, it could. Mia is also co-chair of the Rhode Island chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America's Afro-Socialists and Socialists of Color Caucus. Her dissertation, Antinomies of Organizing, reconstructs theories of political organizing from the work of organizers in 20th century U.S. labor and civil rights movements. It argues that the American organizing tradition offers democratic theory a necessary perspective on the development of political agency in oppressed people. Her public writing on organizing has appeared in Jacobin, the Forge, and Democratic Left. I started by asking Inoue to describe what Reclaimed Rhode Island does uh, and her own role in uh, getting it off the ground. So I um, was part of the initial group of people who came together and founded this organization called Reclaim Rhode Island in April, May of 2020. We were all volunteers with Rhode Island for Bernie, which was just an entirely volunteer um, sort of in like loose organization for the Bernie Sanders campaign. And we um, were very active, although we did not actually get the opportunity to campaign for Bernie in Rhode Island. Uh, But we did send a lot of people to Massachusetts um, to to canvas. And what we noticed was that a lot of um, people stepped up and took on leadership roles, um, you know, even as like bus captains for the canvases or coordinating phone banks who hadn't been very politically active uh, and who didn't necessarily identify as socialists, but who were moved by Bernie's um, platform. And so we wanted to continue to mobilize those people. And, um, you know, it was during the middle of the pandemic. And so it be, it had become extremely clear how important some things like Medicare for all were. Uh, and it felt wrong to sort of to stop campaigning on, on those issues just because um, Bernie had suspended his campaign. So we decided to form an organization that would continue that work. And um, that was 
in, we, we were partly inspired by Reclaim Philadelphia, um, which is, was formed out of the Bernie 2016 campaign, mm. has a kind of similar model and has had a lot of, they elected like Larry Krasner um, as DA in Philadelphia um, and Nikhil Saval uh, recently as a state rep. So um, we were interested in their, in their kind of model. So we founded the organization and then um, just the first uh, two things that we did were we started with a campaign on the state budget because even back in, in May, uh, we knew that there was uh, an $18 million gap, projected gap in the state in the state budget, and the governor had promised brutal cuts hmm. across the board to public services. And so we decided that we would make it our campaign to prevent cuts. So just like a no cuts campaign um, on the budget. And uh, the, the, we just learned, um, two weeks ago that the budget finally came out. It was extremely delayed, uh, and it doesn't make any cuts to public services. And it actually reverses cuts to distressed cities and towns that the governor had and the director of administration in Rhode Island, Brett Smiley had kind of made under the table. Um, and we, I think played an important role in publicizing that and in mobilizing people, um, to call and put pressure on their state reps and state senators to oppose any cuts uh, to the budget. Mm. Um, so that was our first thing. And then the second thing was we um, also have an electoral committee and um, we interviewed and endorsed four candidates for state rep and state senate um, in the Democratic primaries who all ran against um, conservative Democrats. So our state mm. is... Uh, you know, an entirely blue state has been for a long time. And what that means is that the Democratic Party is uh, often, you know, indistinguishable from the Republican Party. Mm. And so uh, we we are trying to build a progressive caucus uh, within the Rhode Island um, State House. And so uh, all four of our, uh, they, our endorsed candidates won their elections. Um, there was really a blue, a progressive sweep across the state. Um, and uh, we were one of several organizations, including the Rhode Island Political Co-op, Providence DSA, um, and the Sunrise Movement in Rhode Island that endorsed and campaigned for those candidates, among others. Mm. Um, so that that's those are kind of the two things. And now we're at a juncture where we are about to have, you know, a, a deliberation, deliberative process about what our next campaigns might be. Wow. So, well, congratulations. That sounds like, you know, so far you, uh, it's, it's, you guys are like, I don't know what the baseball term is, but you're batting like a perfect score. <laughs> um, uh, so I'm curious about the, um, the anti-austerity. So, so you made that just upfront. It was, um, uh, and it's, it's something that a lot of us, uh, you know, uh, as socialists or, or progressives, um, uh, you know, it's, uh, I don't mean this to sound facetious, but it's an easy demand to make. Um, yeah. uh, and uh, what do you think were the specific factors that made it successful in in your case? Like, how did it go from a fairly standard demand on the left to something that you were actually able to, you know, nix uh, in, in the state budget? Good question. 
the, I think that the, one of the really important, um, things for us was having people in the organization who were very familiar with the internal politics of the state house, um, because that some of them had held office previously, um, and some of them, I mean, we also have allies who are, you know, DSA backed, um, elected representatives. And so we were able in the, at the outset, like this, the idea for the campaign, we didn't just say like, oh, well, we oppose cuts to public services, you know, so let's just do that or something. Like we had a process of, um, deliberating over, some different ideas for campaigns. And then we basically got a sense that this was something that, that, um, was possible because Mm. of the, um, number of nominally progressive representatives who were in the house already. And that we could, that we were in a position to publicize and to, um, to put pressure on people, Hmm. you know, around. Um, And there was no other organization that had decided to make the state budget specifically, like it's, um, it's, it's focus in a way that was like, that's, so there were other organizations that had been um, in coalition coming up with a set of sort of demands for the state budget, but um, as a kind of base building organization, we felt like what we could contribute was um, was getting a bunch of ordinary people to think about the stakes of the budget and then to strategically um, have meetings with their state representatives um, and do phone banking and things like that to um, make sure that they knew that we were watching and that we wanted them to, um, to, to pledge to vote against any budget cuts. So it was, um, you know, a, a demand that was not the sexiest demand maybe, or the sexiest idea for a campaign, but it was one that we thought obviously followed from the Bernie platform and that um, we were in a position to actually win. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and it obviously worked. Um, uh, you know, it, it, mechanically, was it, were you getting people to make separate sort of calls, uh, you know, saying that uh, I don't want the, uh, you know, uh, public uh, transportation budget uh, cut because it'll affect me in this way, or I don't want, uh, you know, the funding for uh, public education cut. So did it, did it break down? Were you trying to apply pressure in the, you know, from different parts of the budget or, or did it remain this global sort of just no cuts to public services? Yeah. Um, that's a really good question. Something that we, um, grappled with, like we did have, um, a more specific set of demands, um, Specifically, you know, we the, we we had a pledge that we asked legislators to um, sign on sign on to, um, and uh, in in the pledge, we specifically asked um, them to vote against um, any budget that um, made cuts to public services and to push 
uh, including education, healthcare, affordable housing, and to push for a budget that um, that uh, reallocated funding from um, policing and um, state prisons uh, to public services and that taxed the rich, right? Ta reverse, reversed um, a tax 2006 tax cut to the, to the highest earners um, in Rhode Island. So we did put all of that in there, but we did intentionally try to leave it fairly vague um, and make the main demand to vote against a budget with any cuts because um, we didn't want to, we wanted to um, make the demand clear and something that um, left room for legislators to negotiate um, and to figure out like, um, you know, where the funding would come from. So we tried to give like information about where we thought it could come from and talking points for our members to say like this issue, cutting funds to, to public schools personally affects me. Um, but, and, and that also said like, well, when we're talking to, um, you know, Brett Smiley or, um, you know, Ramondo or our state reps that we could say like, well, why, why, why are the, you know, the um, millionaires and billionaires in the state paying a lower effective tax rate than middle-class and working-class people, right? Um, do, can you do something about that? So we did, um, you know, have those ideas uh, that we had developed and our policy team had, had developed. Um, but ultimately, we tried to uh, make a, a, a very clear and general ask. Hmm. Hmm. Have you had time to, uh, you know, I know the budget is still uh, relatively new. Have you had time to look and see how they actually, uh, like where the money, okay, actually, so I should ask you first. So some states like Massachusetts uh, are required by law to balance their budgets. Um, yeah. And uh, so is, is that the case with Rhode Island or... Um, I'm actually not sure. Okay. I, know that. Uh, um, I, I, I suspect, I'm guessing, it, especially since it's a small state, it probably needs to, you know, I mean, yeah. uh, but uh, but it's a different landscape if you can run a little bit of a deficit versus if you... Totally. Yeah. So, okay, so let's assume that, and I'll look it up too, but let's assume that they have to balance it. Then do you have a sense of where they did make the cuts so that they didn't yeah. have to cut? Yeah. Um, I think that most of most of it came from federal federal funding hmm. um, that was um, for for COVID relief. Ah, um, okay. It was using a lot of that money to, to fill the holes. Okay. Um, they also over projected the deficit, I think, <laughs> initially. Um, and and, um, you know, and so the the like the gap ended up being being less. Um but um, there's there the um, for the this was also just a it was like a um, stopgap budget right so we're now you know there's going to be a new 2021 budget process and um, there the question of uh, a tax on the rich is still open. And um, interestingly, the governor has has made a couple of public statements recently um, suggesting that she would potentially su support um, a, a, a tax on, on the rich. So um, there's some momentum around that. Um, and uh, and that's, 
and and also on pausing uh, pausing attacks phase out on um, automobiles that has been underway for a while. Um, so there are a few issues like that that um, that are still live for for the next budget. Okay. Okay. So it's it 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 may be the case that they made some other cuts that were, you know, we'd say, yeah, you should cut that. Um, uh, but it could also be that they just got enough money from the federal government that they didn't have to make any cuts anyway, um, uh, which still, you know, it's it's a, it's a real achievement to prevent because you also get the feeling that there are governments are always looking for excuses to make yeah, the cuts. Yeah, exactly. I think that yeah, was the yeah. one of the main things was just that it was um you know the 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 um you, the leadership and the governor um were perversely using the pandemic as a way to um to cut to cut funding to public services. Um, and so it was, you know, basically to try to shine a light on that was kind of our goal and to say like, this is like a moment in which, you know, you should be doing the opposite. You should be putting more funding into these things. Yeah. Yeah. Which totally, you know, one can certainly imagine that if the, if that's one reason for the federal government to respond in a particular way is if they get pressure from a bunch of states saying we simply can't cut the budget and, yeah. um, and without that pressure, you know, it's, it's not clear that they would they would do that um yeah uh it would just be really interesting to see like you know when when it's finalized kind of you know how, the how they, yeah, yeah. How they actually um, yeah definitely yeah. yeah we need to um do a kind of like um thorough debrief to figure out like what what ended up happening yeah and yeah you were all as you mentioned you were doing this in the midst of the um uh, the anti-police uh protests in the in the summer and um uh did did you get a feeling that that got some traction uh popularly with uh, you know in in talking to people or in organizing that yeah this could be a trade-off between police budgets and public services was was there a sense that that was working or? yeah definitely um and there were a lot of we were focused on the state level but there was there was also a lot of organizing happening um and that is ongoing um, in Providence around, you know, we're, so the it, the most of the policing, um, the police budget budget is at the municipal level rather than the state level. So we um, we did um, uh, highlight the the amount of funding that is that goes into um, state policing and and in and state prisons, but. Um, there was at the same time a campaign around defunding um, the police by 70% in Providence. And so, um, and so I think that people were, um, you know, obviously it, I think that that to me, I think there's a lot of work to do around that campaign in Providence um, uh, and nationally um, around defunding the police Um but I think it's an I think that it's a important and powerful demand precisely because it makes that connection between austerity and systemic racism. Uh, and so, you know, I think when when we have um, conversations with people 
so Providence DSA is doing some really great work with um, doing deep canvassing around um, defunding the police um, and talking to people in working class neighborhoods about their views on public safety. Mm. And I've done just a little, a little bit of that. I want to do a lot more with them. Um, But I've noticed that like when you, when you tell people initially, a lot of people that I talked to were not um, critical of the police or were not willing to voice criticisms of the police, but when we shared information with them about how much of the city budget goes into policing and how much goes towards education, people were very angry and were much became much more willing to speak critically of the police and to even recall experiences of police misconduct. So to me, I think that's where um, the movement uh, for defunding the police needs to go is um, having deep conversations with people and, um, and helping to connect the dots, um, between, um, budgets and, um, police brutality. Mm. Yeah. Because in, in, in this example, it's almost like just providing basic information. Yeah. uh, You know, so it's not that people are fixed on their views about the the police in the absence of I mean once they they see what it's competing with yeah. uh, they they can change their minds um, um, okay so you know how now okay so in light of your so you know you've you've done this work and uh, with uh, with reclaim and and I guess we can broadly call it electoral work. Uh, you know, as well. Um, how can you reflect on, you know, I'm sure you've, we won't name names, but, you know, there is <laughs> among DSA sort of, uh, you know, there's uh, uh, dissatisfaction with, uh, well, electoral politics generally, but also, um, uh, you know, particular outcomes when you do get your people in and what they do or don't do. Um, I, I mean, how, what, what's your, based on your experience now, like, uh, you know, what would you say about the value of a certain kind of work and engagement? Uh, how much effort should we be putting into this? It's a really important question, um, especially this week, I think, <laughs> with all of the um, the the controversy around um, around uh, the squad and their, you know, um, election, their, you know, voting for um, for Pelosi. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, I I think that people right now on the left are very disillusioned with electoral politics, um, because I, I think it has to, you know, I think that one of the main reasons, the most obvious reason is, um, you know, the fact that Bernie was not only, you know, not only defeated in the primary, but, but, you know, he was, sabotaged, right, by the Democratic Party. And um, that is, that's very, um, people, there are really good reasons to be, um, to be skeptical of, of the Democratic Party and of, um, you know, the possibility um, for um, radical politics within the Democratic Party. Um, that said, I, I still think that we have to recognize in this moment of despair, the huge, uh, achievements and the growth of the left over the past 10 years, um, 
from a position of being extremely marginal to having demands and ideas like Medicare for all and the Green New Deal and defunding the police in the mainstream public discourse. And much of that has happened through electoral politics, right? Through Bernie's campaigns in 2016 and 2020, and through the election of Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and Ocasio, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Cori Bush, et cetera. Um, and so we can't discount that. And I do think we have to take the long view um, and recognize that um, electoral politics as, as incredibly frustrating as it is uh, in this country um, is, a way, the, the, a way that we can um, pursue these kinds of non-reformist reforms and um, educate people about, um, you know, alternatives to, to capitalism and neoliberalism. Um, I also think that it's an important moment to think about the relationship between um, electoral organizing and mass mobilization. So we had a summer where we saw the biggest protests that we've ever seen in the United States. And, um, and those protests um, accomplished a lot in the sense that they politicized a lot of people who had never been politically active before. Mm -hmm. And they um, really shifted the way that people thought about, um, about, um, uh, the continuing anti-Black racism that, um, that is deeply entrenched in our, um, systems of policing and incarceration. Um, and, um, what I hope is that, uh, we are, as the left are able to see the, um, the, the importance of moments of mass mobilization like that um, and the way that, um, you know, in moments where we're not in the midst of a mass mobilization like right now, um, we can use other forms of association organizing, including electoral organizing, to build on the demands that those that those um, that social movements generate. Right. And also to create an infrastructure and, and, and educate people so that when there is an opportunity for another mass mobilization, right, we're ready for it and we're ready to maximize it and make the most of it. So I think that it's important that people recognize that organizing and mobilization are they have distinct logics. They work differently, but they can and should complement each other. Um, and um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's important for us not to abandon the electoral arena, even in this moment of despair and confusion, mm. um, but to use it as an opportunity to think seriously about, OK, like what are the reasons that we do this kind of work and how does it relate to other forms of um, of organizing and mobilization? Mm. Yeah, I really like that. And, and it's something instinctively that, although I have no particular experience in working on a campaign, but you sort of like hope that regardless of, let's say you do win uh, a victory in the sense of getting someone elected, regardless of what they do or don't do, um, that the process has given you opportunities to reach people in ways that would otherwise be be difficult, um, mm -hmm. um, which 
did you have that experience during Reclaim where, so, you know, I can imagine people being persuaded or, or even instinctively against budget cuts without that necessarily being a uh, a path towards thinking about, you know, capitalism or neoliberalism generally. But were you a- all able to inject some of that uh, in in the campaign? Um. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I and I I hope that the answer is yes. Um, <laughs> I think we have a lot of work to do, you know, around political education and trying to. Um, we're actually now in the midst of um, creating like a vision statement for the organization. We just sort of jumped into like doing a campaign and and didn't really do that, you know, um, step of of articulating like our horizon. Um, and so I think now like our work is making sure that we have uh, a clear picture of the kind of society that we're trying to build and where, um, you know, where uh, a fight, the fight around, um, around the state budget fits into that. Um, I do think that we, um, a lot of our members that we grew pretty dramatically over these past six months. And we have, um, I think right now we have about um, 80 dues paying members and then a lot more people who are, um, who have been involved uh, in, in our campaigns. Um, and um, one thing that I think is really cool is that a lot of those people, I think were politicized over the summer um, mm. and, and were not necessarily, um, as I said, socialists or people who, who had a lot of political experience, um, but who felt like really, the need in the midst of the pandemic and the protests this summer to be active. And, um, and so we have had, um, you know, sessions, like we did a, um, a zoom like, um, meeting that was specifically about the politics of the budget and how the budget gets passed and what the, what the reasons are that, um, even progress nominally progressive electeds don't want to um, vote against um, the budget, right? And don't want to sign onto pledges, you know, in some cases um, saying that they will vote against the budget. Um, and we had, you know, folks who had, had had held office in the past or who currently do come and answer our questions, like kind of as like a panel. And I think that that was really eye-opening for, for a lot of our members mm-hmm. um, and talking about um, the idea of austerity um, and just learning about the fact that, you know, it's not just a question of whether we're going to have an austerity budget now, but we have had austerity for the past 30 years in Rhode Island, right? That's the norm. And so, you know, the question is, um, like why and why, and what do we, and what do we have to do to, um, to reverse that? Um, so I think that we did do a lot of education, political education, um, I think we have more work to do to connect the dots between, um, you know, austerity and uh, and our socialist horizon. Um, so, that, yeah, there's that. And I just wanted to say one thing, which, you know, we don't have to go into it if, if we've limited time or whatever. But um, just you were saying that on the question about elected uh, electoral politics, like, that there are things that we um, are able to educate people about regardless of what the what elected officials do once they're in office. I think that's true. But I also want to say, I think accountability is really important. Mm. 
And it's, it is really important that we figure out ways on the left of holding elected officials accountable. Um, and this is, I mean, I don't have a lot of experience with that, but my, our small experience is um, that in, in reclaim, when we um, endorsed candidates, we interviewed them or our electoral committee interviewed them and asked them, um, you know, a set of questions um, that were like focused on our priorities as an organization. Um, and specifically the main thing was we asked them what they, wh whether they would support cuts to public services, because mm. that was our campaign. Mm. And so they all pledged not to, right. And they stuck by that pledge. And, um, and so there are other things that have come up since then where some of our, some of our candidates, um, haven't made like the most um, progressive decision. But to me, it's important to recognize that when you send people, especially like people who are not career politicians or who have no, you know, background as an elected official um, and who come from working class backgrounds um, into um, a a system that is very much set up to to um, prevent um, people like them from making change. Uh, you do have to recognize that, like, they're going to have to make compromises, um, and that's difficult. And I think right now what we're seeing is a lot of people on the left feeling, um, you know, very anxious about, um, you know, these people that, you know, that. Um, we have worked to get elected and who we think are of as, you know, progressive champions um, betraying us. Um, but the, I think the way to hold people accountable is not to demonize them, is not to, um, is not to make them into our enemies or make them, uh, or, or um, to, uh, feel like we have lost any um, sense of accountability when they make a decision that we don't agree with, um, but to be organized. Like we have to be organized, you know, um, through organizations like DSA or Reclaim. And we have to know what our goals are, what our priorities are and what our strategies are. And when we endorse candidates, we need to make sure that they understand what our priorities are. And then we have to continue to educate them and maintain relationships with them. Um, and to me, you know, it's just important that we recognize that um, our ability to hold elected officials accountable depends on our ability to um, collectively develop uh, a strategy and, um, you know, strategies that make sense. Uh, and, um, so, you know, I just worry about, um, I worry about people, um, uh, disengaging, um, from, uh, you know, internal processes within organizations like DSA, um, and trying to, uh, influence electeds like entirely through social media strategies, um, because I don't think that that's a, I don't think that that's um, a good way to pursue accountability. Although I, I do think accountability is a very important goal if we're going to play the game of electoral politics. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. I think I mean not just uh, you know in the in the U.S. where it's still relatively underdeveloped. You know, our mm -hmm. our role 
on on the left um you know promoting electoral but but you know you see this in countries even with you know much more mature sort of left uh, traditions where it, it there's no guarantee that the elected representatives will actually hew to the the line if there is a line and um yeah. uh, uh you know you need the organization uh, in any case uh, you know i i mean both of us are in academia i mean my my f- uh, analogy sometimes is um uh that in my own mind is that you know when we try to make uh, institutional changes in academia like uh, you know hiring more people doing a certain kind of work or um uh, uh you know uh, sort of more equitable in some ways you know racially or by gender or whatever it is um uh, it's actually very hard for even a well-intentioned institution to achieve in a short time frame um yeah. uh, and and it almost never happens if you just do it once or twice in some very visible spectacular way yeah. um uh you know y- you have to actually hire a whole bunch of people at the same yeah. time right. or there has to be a a, a movement across campuses or or something yeah, like that exactly. you know and and then people you know get this get each other's support as well you're not the only yeah. person who's you know in in that position um uh and 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 there's no formula for that i mean we you know you yeah. it it has to happen enough for it to then keep happening some more and none of yeah. us actually knows uh, you know how to time that um yeah yeah i think that's really important is like thinking about the like it's a collective action problem like within within the House of Representatives or within the State House in Rhode Island, right? And how do you put people in a position where they understand that they have allies and they are cohesive as a group? Yes. And so to that end, I'm I'm heartened to see that the Progressive Caucus um, uh, has just, you know, come up with um, like a set of rules or they're going to be whipping votes and, you know, um, and you have to vote with the caucus at least like two thirds of the time or something like that. So I think that's a good step towards that at the national level. And in Rhode Island, that's we're trying to build towards something like that, where we don't just have isolated progressives who are basically hamstrung because if they vote against the leadership, they will not be able to deliver anything to their constituency because their bills won't come up for a vote. Right. Mm. Like when you're, how do you get past that problem? It's by what you're doing, what you're saying, which is giving them a lot of company and then, you know, and, and running your own candidates and educating those people and maintaining relationships with them in an ongoing way um, so that they are organized. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for, you know, informing us about the the whole Reclaim project. I mean, I, I really hope, you know, not only does it continue to be successful, but that you all are able to kind of, you know, proselytize, you know, make it a yeah, broader yeah. kind of... Um, um, yeah, I want there to be a lot more reclaims. The enduring pro- popularity of Trumpism, demonstrated spectacularly in last week's events, means that socialists in the U.S. have to engage in mass politics in every form. In particular... Despite its constant potential for betrayal and compromise, socialists cannot abstain from electoral politics. Reclaim Rhode Island offers a concrete example of socialists and progressives engaging with state budgets and elections 
to win specific important victories with real positive consequences for people's lives. And their work also allows socialists to communicate with people who would otherwise have little contact with left politics. Over the next few weeks, I'll be talking with Amel Ahmed about the continuing threats to electoral democracy in the U.S. and with Thea Riofrancos about the prospects for the Green New Deal in the Biden administration. Join us in thinking aloud about how our day-to-day work during Corona can cohere into a battle plan for democratic socialism after it 